Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellero, and this week my guest is Princeton theoretical physicist, Dr. Paul Steinhardt. Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, John. It's a, pl- a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, the listeners and the readers know my background is in physics. And when um, Dr. Keating introduced us, I will thank him for that. Uh, I was very thrilled to, to learn about you. And then I saw the reference in Scientific American to your book on crystals, quasi-crystals. And I thought, this is going to be really neat. So for the listeners, let me give an introduction. You are the Albert Einstein Professor in Science at Princeton University, where you're on the faculty of both departments of physics and of astrophysical sciences. You co-founded the Princeton Center for Theoretical Sciences and are currently director of that prestigious institution. You hold a PhD from Harvard, and your research interests have included cosmology, inflation theory, dark matter, and a specialized and specialized solids, quasi-crystals, and others. So that's who you are. But before we get into that, I want to ask you about your background, as I always do on the show. Uh, I want to ask okay. you how you got interested in physics. There's usually some trigger point for young people, as there is for astronomers and physicists at some bingo moment. How, how did it all happen for you when you were young? Well, uh, my interest in science uh, dates back uh, to my first memories. Uh, my father uh, used to tell me stories sitting on, you know, I used to sit on his knee, used to tell me stories, fairy tales and the like. But for some reason, he also told me stories about scientists and, and their discoveries. People like uh, Madame Curie or Galileo or, or Louis Pasteur and others. And the stories always would reach their climax when the scientist would discover something that everyone thought wasn't possible. Uh, that moment of realization that, that they'd really proven the thing that everyone else thought wasn't possible uh, was, to me, uh, just uh, thrilling, the way, especially the way he told the story. It was thrilling, and it made me want to have that feeling, and that meant becoming a scientist. So I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. As for physics... Um, well, while I was growing up and through high school, I had experience with lots of sciences, but very little experience in physics. Um, and I really only really encountered physics uh, in the raw when I went to Caltech as a freshman, where everyone was required to take physics. In a sense, I chose it because I knew they would require me to take physics, and I was curious whether it was really interesting. And, well, within a few weeks, I encountered several famous physicists uh, who were teaching us. I had encounters with uh, Richard Feynman, among others. My hero, I, by the way. Yeah, mine too. Uh, and so I was totally sold. Uh, uh, so I quickly changed my plans as to what I was going to do as an undergraduate. And what was your initial physics. plan? Uh, I was thinking of either doing biology or mathematics, uh, because I had had a lot of experience in both, in both when I was uh, when I was growing up uh, in laboratories and taking advanced classes, but for some reason not in physics. So I knew much less about physics than biology or chemistry or astrophysics or geophysics or almost any other area of science. So it was a revelation when I went to Caltech. Were you privileged to sit on sit in on Dr. Richard Feynman's uh, lectures in physics that led to the three red books? No, I'm not quite that old. <laughs> uh, he, he, he had given those 10 years before I, I arrived on campus, but I was still at 
Caltech at a time when those books were being used as the primary textbooks mm -hmm. for the course. And they were taught by other pretty fantastic people. Um, so, um, uh, uh, not Layton, but um, uh, Tommy Lauritsen was, for example, one of the great uh, teachers in the first year. He was a wonderful lecturer and, and, and actually it was a nice compliment. He had his own view on science, uh, which was very novel, and, um, and it complemented the book beautifully. Uh, so I, it was a great combination. And, uh, and as I said, it, it, it put, sold me pretty fast on this as being something really important to do. That everything I'd really want to understand about nature, physics provided the tools for exploring, the best tools for exploring it. I hadn't appreciated that before. There's some really grand issues and problems in cosmology that just capture the imagination. Yes, and 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 not just in cosmology, but even in you know the microscopic world, and even you know just in our as you walk around, you know our daily lives. There's all kinds of fascinating things. If you if you if you, with an appreciation of physics, you come to appreciate lots of things that you see every day have a much more much richer meaning than they would um, than they do if you don't understand physics. Do you have any fun stories about Dr. Feynman? I know the show's about you, but I can't help but asking. Any bongo parties or anything? I didn't do any of those kinds of wild things. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there were more legends to me. But I did have a lot of interactions with him. So when I was a junior, the third year, uh, my roommate and I uh, knocked on Feynman's door and asked him if he'd be willing to teach a course that came to be called Physics X. Uh, it was an official course. Yeah. yeah, it's not an official course, an unofficial course. And he would come uh, once a week and he would come and answer any questions you had about anything, provided they were scientific questions and provided that you were actually interested in understanding why something worked the way it did or looked the way it did or behaved the way it did. You couldn't come and ask him a question about so-and-so's equation, but you could come and ask him, you know, why is the cloud, why is the sky blue or why are, you know, why, how does a double rainbow work or how, are, how is it, uh, what is the nature of the shadows on the moon and, and all, you know, all kind anything. I'm giving you just some examples. And then he would take off and try to, uh, do his best to try to answer your question. Uh, so most, most of the time, of course, he, or there are questions he had already thought about. But what I found most exciting were the questions he hadn't thought about. And, and there you got to see him struggle with it and uh, the way he thought about things and the enthusiasm and the same sort of aggressive um, thinking that, uh, that uh, it was infectious. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think the most important lesson I learned from those experiences is that where, when I... My impression of Feynman was that he was this, you know, very high-powered theoretical physicist who worked on particle physics, high-energy physics, which he, which he was. Uh, but for him, every bit of nature was fascinating. There was not, there were no rules that this is boring and this is interesting. Everything was interesting, and that was a really important influence on me because um, it meant. I, I also love all of science. I don't like to work in an unrestricted way, and it meant that that was okay. You can, it's okay if you, if you go that way. You don't yeah, have to specialize. I can see from your bio so, that you have a lot of interest, a broad range of interest. That's really cool. So, yeah, really, really influenced by that experience with Feynman. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I couldn't have gotten through graduate school without the Red Books. <laughs> yeah. They're wonderful reading, and, and they're, they're so deep. You, I still look back at them today and find things that 
I didn't notice before. So it's, it's fascinating. One of the things that not too many people know is, is that after you graduate with your bachelor's, they won't have you generally in the uh, graduate program because there's, they know you too well. And uh, yes, people should true. see you with fresh eyes as a graduate student. So you went on to Harvard yeah, right. later. And that's important. And it is very important to, I think, move around and, uh, and have to re- re- reestablish yourself and, and rethink what you're doing. So I, I found that very important. If I read your bio right, you worked on group theory and quantum electrodynamics at Harvard. Is that right? Yes, quantum field theory generally, various applications to particle physics, trying to what, the, what were then the current issues at the time, trying to understand the way elementary particles interact through the weak interactions, and um, and then the strong strong force interactions as well. You must have been so, up yeah. to your ears in Feynman diagrams, right? Um, it, not in that particular um, set of projects. I was using uh, a new tool, uh, which we call lat, which is now an old tool. It's called lattice gauge theory, and it's a way of studying certain field theories in limits where Feynman diagrams won't work well when the forces involved, the couplings involved between particles are very strong. So there you need a new set of tools, and one of the set of tools that was just starting out then, it's called uh, lattice gauge theory, which means you're treating space-time as if it's discrete, and you're doing calculations on this lattice in, in a certain way that allows you to, um, to, to, make, to, do, to do these calculations and compare them with other techniques that existed at the time, see how much better you do. That's what my thesis was about. One of the gaps in your bio was uh, what you did right after you got your Ph.D. Most uh, Ph.D. students go into a postdoc or something like that, or they work for aerospace because they can't find a postdoc. How about you? Uh, Well, I was invited to stay at Harvard and become uh, a member or a junior fellow at what's called the Society of Fellows. That's a historic organization of not always, not just postdocs. Some people were pre-docs, some were postdocs, depending upon what field they were in. Uh, but um, it's a society which covered all fields: humanities, social sciences, the sciences. Each year, they would choose eight people. Uh, you would meet each um, each week for dinner with senior fellows who represented all these different fields as well. So it was another great place to sort of broaden, a great opportunity to broaden after graduate school. Graduate school yeah. tends to narrow you, and this was encouraging you to broaden yourself. It's quite an honor, too. So you went from the very, very small uh, to the very large in terms of cosmology and inflation theory. That's one of the areas I wanted to ask you about. Um, the, the normal thinking for the listeners is, is that there was a pretty good physicist in the early days who figured out that there was this period right after the Big Bang or hypothesized that there was something called inflation where in a fraction of a second the universe grew enormously and accounts for the observations that we have today of the structure of the universe. You worked on inflation theory as well. But there's a really yes. interesting article in the February 19. 19- Sky and Telescope magazine about the current thinking on inflation theory, even to the point where, if I remember the article correctly, they talked about how instead of Big Bang happening and then inflation shortly thereafter, it could have been the other way around. Um, and now all of a sudden, the, everything's been thrown into a tizzy in my in my view. 
And that article really warped my mind. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fresh thinking about what's going on. Give us an explanation, if you will, about what inflation is and why it's so important. Okay, so um, before inflation, there was uh, a theory that we just called the Big Bang Theory. Uh, it didn't have. Uh, it was a theory which uh, proposed that the universe sprang from nothing into something. Space and time came into existence, had a beginning, and the universe, and that space and time was filled with hot matter and radiation. And what happened with the universe is that it expanded and cooled over time, eventually forming everything we see. Uh, which was a nice idea. It explains certain features of our universe. We have lots of evidence that the universe was once hot and lots of evidence that's been expanding and cooling. But that theory ran, runs into problems. Um, the, uh, it, if you come out of a violent, high-energy Big Bang like that, the laws of quantum physics strongly suggest that the universe should be highly non-uniform. You know, huge variations in the distribution of energy and temperature and, mm -hmm. and space and time should be curved and warped. And, that, and then that's what we should see today. But we don't see that today. We, we observe the universe on large scales. The distribution of energy is amazingly uniform. And the laws of geometry are Euclidean laws of geometry, not the geometry you'd expect if space were curved and warped. So you have to explain, you know, you want to save the successes of the Big Bang, the idea of ex once being hot and cooling, but you want to save it from uh, uh, these, these questions about uh, why is it have these, and how did it start off so smooth and, and why did it geometrically start, flat? And why did it stop, right? Yeah, and why did it, yeah, why did, why did it, why did it come into existence? Right. Why did, how did the inflation start? And then what made it stop, exactly? Do we have any and then to get the better, states. do we have any better ideas about how, how inflation was caused and started, assuming that it did? Well, actually, as we've come to study that, so I was, I first was introduced to cosmology um, by the fellow I think you're referring to, who first introduced the idea of inflation, Alan, Alan Guth, Guth at yeah. MIT. Yeah. Um, I went to a t one of his first talks on the subject at Harvard. Uh, and um, although he had a nice idea of, of how to get, uh, of uh, how inflation could help, he had no way of starting it or stopping it. And that's the first thing I worked on, was try to find a way of stopping it. And we did find a way of stopping it, my student and I. And that's how I, you know, so the keys idea, key, many of the key ideas used in inflation today are ideas that stem back to the work I did in those early uh, years. But at the same time, I also discovered that the idea has a number of problems that we haven't conquered to this day. Uh, and um, so, in fact, getting... The first question is, why is there a Big Bang at all? Second question, if you have a Big Bang, how do you manage to go from the bang to, um, to uh, inflation starting? Turns out inflation requires very special conditions to start. And so if you're trying to explain the conditions of the universe, it's not good if your theory itself requires its own special conditions. And, and then the third thing is it's hard to end uh, inflation once it starts. Yeah. It runs away, and instead of making a smooth universe, it produces a patchy universe where different patches, like ours, would have different physical properties. So instead of explaining why the universe is the way it is, you end up something with something called a multiverse. I like to call it a multi-mess, in which the universe <laughs> breaks up into patches in which every conceivable thing can happen. So that's not a predictive theory. 
that's a fundamental problem. And so that's the reason why one has to rethink. Okay, well, we got to take a break right now. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion, and I have some other questions about your interests. But first, we have to take a short break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm talking with Princeton theoretical physicist Dr. Paul Steinhardt. We'll be right back. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thanks, Kelly. We're back. I'm chatting with theoretical physicist Dr. Paul Steinhardt. So we were talking about inflation before the break uh, and multiverses. If I understand multiverses correctly, it's like foam. It's like our universe is one of the bubbles amongst many universes. That's the cartoon picture. Uh, it may or may not be the right thing, but it's good enough for the purposes of this discussion. How do we detect the presence of those multiverses? Uh, by, by construction, they're not things you can ever detect. So you can only detect things that are within your patch, the patch of uh. space you can observe, your bubble. So they're hypothetical, uh, and, and they... Um, confound the theory in the sense that if you want to know anything about your universe, you might say, well, what are the average properties among these bubbles? And the answer is, there is no average property among these bubbles. Everything can happen with equal probability, which means that any particular instance, like the extraordinary uniformity of our universe, is highly improbable in this theory. So is every other property, highly improbable. Everything is, because the universe is so multivariate to the extreme. And so this is um, put a uh, created a schism in the field uh, between uh, one, three communities. Uh, one that says um, this is a terrible idea. This is a, a failure mode, and we need to, because the theory should be predictive. It shouldn't be mm -hmm. random like this. Right. And in which case, we it, we need to fix it. Uh, a second community which says, oh, we just discovered that our universe is inherently random and there's because inflation is the only conceivable idea for explaining it, so we have to accept this idea of multiverse whether we like it or not. And then there's a third community, and I'm part of this third community that says, I don't know how to fix it, so maybe we need a different idea altogether to explain all the properties that we thought inflation was supposed to give us. And so what I've been pursuing is the idea that well, you have to give up something that you believe to be true up to this point. You have to give up the idea that the universe began with a bang, that it had a beginning, that um, there was a sort of quantum origin where it was nothing and then suddenly something, which was never an idea that was proven. It was hypothesized, but it was largely 
accepted by people, but often when you're trying to come up with a new idea, what you have to do is challenge the assumptions that people have been making all along that because you know, they, they thought that was the only possibility and ask, is there something else that's possible? Um, everything I work on is of that nature. Uh, and, and the obvious thing is to imagine that instead of the universe undergoing a bang, it was, what really happened was a bounce. And what that means is that before the bounce, the universe was actually slowly contracting. And then there reached a point where it reached a certain minimum size, not zero, but a certain minimum size. And then it began expanding again. And we're living in the period of expansion that came after the bounce. Let me ask you a question now. So from what I've read, and just an amateur sure. reading in Scientific American, uh, a while back, uh, scientists discovered that the, from these supernova type 1As that the universe rate of acceleration is actually increasing. So if the universe is increasing in its rate of expansion, how do you get to the contraction phase? That's my question. Uh, so, if we're, so there's two possibilities. One is there was only one bounce, and it's in our past. So take the current accelerated expansion, extrapolate backwards, you'll find that it wasn't accelerating. It was con- First of all, it was contracting, going backwards in time. And if you go back far enough, you get to a point where either – if you continue, you'd hit a bang, or something could happen that would lead you to a bounce, and then and then you extrapolate further back from that. So what you're talking about is going ahead in time. The universe is currently accelerating. Mm-hmm. Um, one possibility is there was only one bounce in our past. Uh, another possibility is there will be another possibility is that there w- may be a bounce in our future, and what that would mean is this acceleration could not continue forever. And you might say, well, but we're seeing this acceleration. What would make you think it would ever stop? Well, you have to understand that quantitatively, it's really tiny acceleration. The slightest little change in the nature of the vacuum of the universe could slip the universe into a state where the acceleration would stop and contraction would begin. And that would lead to perhaps a new bounce and then a new period of expansion. And this could repeat at regular intervals. So all these things are possible and, and on the table. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So we got to move on. Great discussion. Um, You're also interested in in dark matter. Why we think that there is something called dark matter and what problem does it solve? And and are we sure it exists or have we eliminated any changes to the laws of gravitation that might be causing the effects we see? And are we just about certain that there is something called dark matter, but yet we can't find it? Can you fill us in? (laughs) Well, okay. Um, Well, there's a number of threads of evidence, that independent threads of evidence, that strongly suggest there's dark matter. We always consider the alternative, such as you suggested. Maybe there's something funny with our understanding of gravity. But those ideas... I would say either don't work or are so complicated it's not clear that they work. We, they haven't helped us in explaining the many observations that we have. The best evidence for dark matter is the measurements of the cosmic microwave background radiation, light from the very early stages of the universe, just when atoms were first forming. Uh, the fact, the, the pattern of, of temperature and radiation observed from them tell us that at that time the universe was nearly smooth and galaxy-free and star-free. And yet today, we see that there are stars and galaxies. And there's people living on these planets, us. The fact that we exist at all can't be explained if you assume there was no dark matter, and if you assume that our understanding of gravity is correct. 
you need something else to help increase the strength of gravity, to add to the strength of gravity beyond what the atoms and molecules and stuff made of atoms and molecules can create. So black, so holes, were, black holes were not enough to trigger the formation of galaxies? You'd need, you'd need lots of them in order, to, that would not be enough, right? Because oh, okay. galaxies are much more massive than that. So you need something else to, to enhance the, the growth, the evolution of the universe from tiny little variations in energy to ones that are concentrated enough to form stars and galaxies. So the best evidence is you look at that picture of the map of the cosmic microwave background radiation, see how smooth it is, and you look at the universe today and you see around you and see how lumpy it is, the only way it can go from smoothness to lumpiness that fast is to have a certain amount of dark matter. And that agrees with the amount of dark matter you'd get by completely independent measurements. Now, you say we can't see it, but actually we can see it in a fairly direct way through the way it distorts the light that passes through it, what we call gravitational lensing. So around certain, if you have enough dark matter that clusters together around galaxies or clusters of galaxies, when the light from galaxies in the background comes through that region, it gets distorted in much the way that, um, that if you look through a Coke bottle, the bottom of a Coke bottle, it distorts the patterns of light coming through there. Right. We see those distortions of those distant galaxies. And you can even map in those regions where the dark matter is and where it isn't. So you're seeing it in the same sense that you're seeing, you, can, you know there's a Coke bottle glass in front of you when you're looking at distant objects, you can infer it from the way it's bending the light, even though the glass itself is transparent. So there's some, way, so some sophisticated experiments underground and in the Antarctic, I think, have searched for the existence of that same dark matter in our own galaxy. But we yes. haven't been able to find it yet. What's going on there? Well, they're looking for, they're assuming a particular kind of dark matter. A particle made of particles which have very specific forces with the um, nuclei, uh, with, the, with the protons and neutrons in nuclei. Um, and there's some motivation for that idea, but no one says it has to be that idea. And it looks like it's not based on the current data we have. We've, we haven't completed the survey. The experiments are still running, but uh, a large range of masses and, and interaction forces have been explored. And so far, you're right, they've come out blank. So that meant we were looking, we were looking at for the lead, what was then the leading candidate, but, there are, but it wasn't leading by a lot, I would say. Mm. There are lots of other candidates which, which would not be detected by those experiments. In fact, only a few can be. So we might be lucky and build some other ways of detecting uh, other kinds of detectors that might help us infer one kind of, of particle or another. But that would be luck. The other way to go, which I think is making much, much more progress, is to study how the dark matter forms around stars and galaxies, which we can now do today using lensing and other techniques. And, um, and then see which kind, which species, which general uh, or phylum of dark matter, you know, it, uh, best explains that data. And that, that is making much more progress at the moment. Cool, cool. Well, that's something that up, remains up in the air and is a subject of interest to a lot of people, me included. So thank you for helping to clarify that. All right. Um, sure, I'm happy move to. On. Uh, you have a broad range of interests, but I only have a few minutes left to get into one of them that fascinates me. And that is quasi-crystals. And you've written a book about them, The Second Kind of Impossible, The Extraordinary Quest for a New Form of Matter. 
tell us about the history of quasicrystals. Uh, there was a glimmer in Scientific American that there was an article a long time ago that paved the way. And then uh, you've done a lot of research and uh, you've been traveling. Um, you went to the remote mountains of Russia's Kamchatka Peninsula looking for them. Give us an overview of quasicrystals. Why are they important? And why are we interested in them? So, so quasicrystals are... Um, similar, similar to what I was describing in cosmology, quasar, quasar crystals are another example of challenging what people thought was possible. For the case of cosmology, people thought you couldn't have a bounce. Now we think it's possible, and that might explain things. Quasar crystals challenged our ideas about what are the possible ways atoms can come together to form a solid and to form matter. Uh, so we thought we knew everything about that subject up to 1984 when. Um, a combination of a theoretical breakthrough and an experimental breakthrough shattered that view. And that's led to the idea of quasi-crystals. So up to that point, we thought that atoms, if they're going to form an orderly arrangement, can only form arrangements where they repeat the pattern, either an atom or a cluster of atoms repeats at some regular intervals. You know, um, a certain, like a sodium chloride, which makes up salt, sodium chloride, sodium chloride, sodium chloride, just repeating over and over again, mm -hmm. would form a crystal of sodium chloride. And all the ordered forms of matter, which are crystals, would be formed in just by that simple repetition rule. And if you assume that simple repetition rule, you can show mathematically, it was shown centuries ago, that... You can only make a very small number of different patterns. It's even there written in Feynman's lectures on physics, where I, you know, one of the places I first studied this. Um, and, for, and, and, and the patterns it makes controls its physical properties. So that means there's only a limited number of different kinds of sets of physical properties that are possible. Is that because so of the thought. environment, the pressure and the gravity and the, and the conditions around it, or is it an absolute Rule. It was thought to be an absolute mathematically rigorous rule, but the problem, the, the mathematics uh, was correct in the sense that if I assume that the atoms only repeat at, at regular intervals, then I'm restricted mathematically to certain forms. And up to the 1984, those were the only forms we observed, so it seemed like we had a nice tight story. But what my student and I showed was that you could get around that by imagining that maybe there's not just one kind of cluster, let's say two different kinds of clusters. And they, they don't, don't repeat at the, at the same rate, or they're not, they don't repeat in sort of harmony with one another, but in disharmony with one another. So that, you know, one repeat at one interval, the other one repeat at another interval, where the ratio of those intervals was not a ratio of integers, like a, a harmony, it was atonal or disharmonic, like a ratio that could be the square root of two. What does that do to the physical properties of the material? Does it does it reveal itself in terms of the ability to fracture or its strength? It, it affects that. It also affects what patterns, what symmetries it can form. So up until 1984, for example, one of the things that was forbidden was to make matter which would form facets which have pentagon shapes. Because pentagon shapes were completely inconsistent with forming crystals. Just for the same reason that if I try to tile my bathroom with perfect pentagons, I'll run into trouble. They won't fit together and I'll have holes and it'll be a disaster. But if you allow me two different shapes and you allow me to repeat according to this 
quasi-rule about different frequencies is disharmony. Then it turns out you can make five-fold symmetry, seven-fold symmetry, 147-fold symmetry. There are an infinite number of new possibilities, mathematically possible. And then we've begun to discover them already, some of these in the laboratory, just a few so far, up to 100 different kinds made synthetically in the laboratory. But we're just beginning this process of exploring this world. And then finally the question came up, well, why don't we see these in nature? Why, you know, why do we have to wait to find them in the laboratory? Were we missing them? Or, I mean, we know crystals occur in nature. We've all seen um, salt and sugar crystals and, we've, and quartz and lots of them. So what about quasi-crystals? Is it possible they exist in nature? Well, that's what the book is about. A second kind of impossible is referring to the fact uh, that many scientists thought this was impossible to make this at all, but that wasn't because it was really impossible. It was because they were making some assumptions that had some loopholes. And if you exploit those loopholes, that's how we discovered it was mathematically possible. And then same for natural quasi-crystals. There were various reasons why many scientists thought that was impossible. But that, again, was based on certain assumptions. And by the end of the book, you'll see that, you know, it took a lot to get there. It took a combination of a detective story and uh, an adventure to a remote region in Russia and and all kinds of strange side stories involving missing persons and strange Romanians <laughs> and Russian Russian um, smugglers and uh, hmm. so forth and so forth, until we finally proved that in fact nature had made them. Curiously enough, they hadn't made them on the Earth. At least the ones we found weren't made on the Earth. They were made in space. They were made in space. Well, long before any of the rocks that you know on Earth were formed. Uh, and that's because they're actually formed before the Earth formed. They're actually a part of the primal stuff that made up our solar system before the planets formed. So not only do quasicrystals exist in nature, but they're one of the first solids to have formed in our solar system, curiously enough. Cool. Uh, and, and then there's lots of, you know, takeoffs in that story, but that's a, a rough idea of some of the, uh, of, of some of the ideas involved. Well, I have time for one last question. What are some of the commercial applications? Uh, what, what makes these crystals favorable for certain uses? Well, we're just beginning to learn that. It takes a long time when you discover a form of matter and to see its best applications. But I'll, I'll, name, I'll name a few. Uh, first of all, they are harder than, um, than um, crystals or, or glasses made of similar elements. And so, in fact, some of them had been in commercial products without people knowing it. There uh, is a like particular the display of my iPhone? <laughs> uh, not, so, not so much of that one. You know? <laughs> but, but, but if you fly in airplanes, it turns out the aluminum alloy sheath that, uh, that, that is used around many airplanes is a mixture of aluminum and um, lithium and other elements that... Um, it turns out to include grains, which only later, after it was already being in use, were discovered to be quasi-crystals. So it turns out quasi-crystals were help play a role in hardening the material. Uh, so that's one kind of application that we've since, since begun to exploit. Another very different kind of application is that if you, you can make a synthetic quasi-crystal. You can print uh, a pattern, a three-dimensional tiling, if you like, a three-dimensional pattern, a three-dimensional network, which has the property that it 
channels light much the way that a semiconductor like silicon channels and controls the flow of electrons. So mm-hmm. they're kind of like semiconductors for light. And that can be important if you want, and we do want someday, to replace electronics with what we call photonics, using light as the carrier of information and energy rather than electrons. Because light travels faster and it, and it dissipates energy less. And so, but you need to uh, find the equivalent of a wire. Well, the equivalent of a wire is a fiber optic cable. That's that we have, but you also need to find the equivalent of a semiconductor. And quasicrystals patterns seem to be very well suited for that purpose. And that's an idea that we're currently explored, exploiting, exploring. Cool, cool. Well, we got to wrap up the show. That was it was really fun chatting with you about all these diverse topics. Thank you for coming on the show and explaining this all to us. It's been great. Well, thanks so much, John. It was good to talk to you. It was good to talk to you, too. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Um, The best place is to uh, go to this website. It's called Second Kind of Impossible, no spaces, secondkindofimpossible.org. And you can, first of all, you know, learn a lot more about quasicrystals, but it will also connect you to me, and you can look at the work I do in cosmology and other areas as well. So I hope they come. Excellent. Just do that, listeners, because this is good work. So, um, listeners, I'm glad you came by and hope you enjoyed the show with Dr. Steinhardt. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>